Footballers' Lives with Richard Lenton is brought to you by the Phoenix Sport and Media Group. Everyone, welcome to Footballers Live. Now, Brian Dean enjoyed a 21-year career as a professional footballer, rising through the divisions with Sheffield United before famously scoring the Premier League's first ever goal. He was involved in big money moves to the likes of Leeds United, Middlesbrough and European giants Benfica. He won a handful of promotions, England caps under Graham Taylor in the early 1990s and eventually amassed 737 games as a pro, scoring 224 goals. But despite those statistics, I think he was underappreciated in many ways. He was very much a team man, always giving his all in whatever shirt he was wearing. He then enjoyed a successful two-year spell in management in Norway, which could and really should have led to opportunities back here. As you can imagine, he's got some pretty interesting views on that situation. However, Brian's now transitioned from the managerial dugout to the corporate world, heading up the Phoenix Sport and Media Group, which manages people's financial, legal and business affairs during their careers, as well as helping sports people in particular prepare and transition into second careers. It's something that's been very much needed for many, many years. Now, just a reminder to please subscribe to Footballers Lives wherever you get your podcasts. And please, five-star reviews on iTunes really do help us get discovered. You don't even have to write anything. Just click on that five-star review. It'll take you a couple of seconds. And like I say, I'd really appreciate it. You can also follow me on Twitter at Richard Lenton. But without further ado, here's Footballers' Lives with Brian D. Okay, Brian, I'm going to start in the relatively recent past because I'm fascinated by that two-year spell in management you enjoyed out in Scandinavia and I suppose why that wasn't a platform for other positions. So just for those listeners who don't know, you took over at Sarpsborg, a team who'd just been promoted to the Norwegian top flight. This was in 2012. How did you end up there? I left football, I retired and then I thought, you know what, I'm still, I've still got the bug. And uh, I ended up deciding, right, I'm going to get my badges. I'm not going to be one of these guys who, um, you know, shouts and slings mud on the sidelines. I'm going to be somebody who's going to go through the process. Um, I went through the process, got my badges. It was really enjoyable, actually. And what it actually made me realise is, is that you have to go through that process to have it as a template. I think too many people think that they have a divine right to, um, you know, end up in a club doing something, and they haven't got, um, they haven't got the qualifications. And I, I really don't think that's fair. Um, and and certainly from doing it, it really gives you a good grounding, um, doing your coaching badges. So so that's what I did. And um, after that process, I kind of. You know, I'm one of those kinds of people. I, I get really inspired if I've got anything, you know, any any kind of award. And I'm like, I remember the the reason why I went into, um, um, looked into management was when I was at West Ham, Alan Pardew um, was my manager. And he, he basically said to me, you know, look, I'm not giving you a contract for next year, which of course I was bitterly disappointed about. But he also said to me, um, have you ever thought about going into management? Because I think you'd be good at it, you know, because obviously I, I, I think because of how I was in and around the um, changing rooms. And um, it kind of stayed with me. And, it, it, you know, he was the first person to kind of say, well, 
you know, what about this, Brian? And it really kind of, I just needed that little bit of encouragement, shall we say. Um, and I thought, you know what, if he's seen something in me, he's, he's at that level. And it, and it kind of inspired me. So that's why I, I kind of took the confidence to think, well, why don't you give it a go? And so I did my badges. Um, I actually thought at the time that I wanted to go under the radar a little bit because I think there are a lot of pros that use the opportunity to to speak in front of the press to tell everybody what they want to do. And I just felt that that wouldn't be the right thing for me to do personally. Um, so I actually thought, right, okay, if I can find something abroad, come out of my comfort zone, and then I'll know whether or not I like it um, and whether or not I'm capable of doing it. And that's exactly what I did. Um, so I, I spoke to an agent, a Norwegian agent, and I, you know, we had a good conversation, said, look, you know, this is what I'd like to do. And he said, look, I, I've got some ideas uh, and, um, you know, I'll, I'll come back to you. There's a few things happening in Norway. And um, he kind of identified that that would have been, an, that would be the great, the best opportunity for me because Sarps at the time was it was a team that had gone up previously and then got relegated with a record low points, and then they got again with the same manager, but the manager decided to step aside, um, and they were looking for something different. And and you know one of the things was that they wanted the club to be more professional than it had been. They wanted a they wanted a new kind of mentality, a more professional mentality. They said. And I kind of went there and I said, look, these are the managers I've played for. And this is what I've done. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm, you know, I've not managed before, but this is what I bring into the room every time. And, um, and it seemed to work for me. And uh, look, let, let's be honest here. Anybody who thinks that you, you know, people walk through uh, um, the, into the changing rooms for the first time and address the players, if they think that, anybody's not nervous in that situation they're totally wrong and I, and I was no different um, and I'm not ashamed of it either I kind of went there I was waiting to meet the players and I was bloody nervous um, and and I actually I remember I'd, I'd done I'd prepared myself a little speech and all the rest of it and um, when I went when I remember I was going to speak to them I couldn't remember a thing that I'd said you know and it and it you know, if if you know anything about pack mentality, it's first impressions are very important. If if you if you if you lose them in that first couple of minutes, then there's no way you can grab them back. And I think that's where all my instincts took charge then and carried me over the line. You know that you know you want to be inspired and you want to be led. Um, you want a leader who you feel is, you know, you're going to learn something from. And I, I remembered all of these things from when I'd met certain managers and the charisma that they had. And I just kind of put it all together. And that was part of my mantra, actually, that I was bringing all of these people into the room. I had the confidence. I'd had a good career. I knew what I was talking about with football. For me, one of the most important um, aspects of, of coaching and management is that presence, that aura, and also the man management with individuals. And, um, yeah, I, I kind of, yeah, I, I think I nailed it to a degree. Um, mm. I took an assistant with me um, 
but I just kind of relied on some of the instincts and I kind of did a reversal of situations where, you know, what had worked for me in terms of which managers had got the best out of me, which manager had got the worst out of me, what would you do, what would, what would it be do? George Graham had a, a big influence in terms of his management style on me, um, always at arm's length and he was a kind of guy, if you, you know, for those of you who've not been in, in, in any kind of management situations, if you go back to school and you remember there were some teachers who you would, you know, you went to their lessons and, and you knew that if you got any kind of praise, then you knew that you'd done well and that's how George Graham was and he would put us all under pressure and, and you know, and there was other people, you know, who I, who I had as managers, you know, Alan Pardew was, you know, quite an inspirational figure. I know he comes, he gets a lot of stick, but that time at West Ham, he was, he, 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 he did a really good job. Um, you know, there was other people, there, Bassett, you know, I just took bits from everybody and applied it to my own experiences and it seemed to work, you know. Yeah. And you'd had a two decade playing career. You'd done your badges. So... Yeah. Taking all that experience, did you have like a, a playing philosophy in mind or do you have to look at the playing staff and then kind of make a decision about how you're going to set up and how you're going to play? Well, I, I think when I went in there, the kind of what they said was, look, this is the kind of football that we're renowned for here um, and this is what we want. And it kind of fell into what I wanted to do as well, you know, um, it was a it was a very technical type of football, um, and the best thing for me in, in many ways was that we had the smallest budget in the league, and so I knew that I had to work with those players and instill that belief in them that they could be better players and actually develop them. We we decided on a on a certain formation, um, which was a, a four two three one, and fortunately for me. We, we, um, there was a lad who had been at Volarenga, one of the top clubs. He'd come over from Nigeria. I'd, I'd been told that this guy had a lot of ability, but he, you know, I think there was an issue with how he was, how he was perceived to be. Into, and, and I knew that if I could get hold of this boy with his attributes, he would be a fantastic asset for us. And we managed to get him, a lad called Aaron Samuel. Um, and Aaron was amazing for me. He kind of remind when I when I saw him, I saw this guy, and he's maybe six foot two, and he was he was stacked, you know. And he reminded me of Tony Yeboah. Um And I knew that if I played to his strengths, being a forward, that we if we could build our our game around his strengths, then we had a chance. We had we we had a boy, uh, Mohamed Elanousi. On, on one wing, who's now at Celtic, Southampton, went to Southampton. We, we, we had a, a system where I had Goodman Thororinson, who, who was playing for the Icelandic under-21 team. Mohamed um, Elanousi, who was, you know, this 18-year-old prodigy at uh, Sarpsborg, from Sarpsborg. We had Aaron Samuels, so we had three young players who I was fortunate enough to be able to mentor and um, you know, I spent a lot of time with those three, especially one to one v ones, one to ones. You know, talking to them and telling them how good they were and so on. And I'd like to think that a little bit of that's rubbed off for me. That was probably my favourite part of the job. But you've got to have a kind of um, 
holistic view of, of the club and the playing situation. Mm. Um, and that means, you know, you can't always be in the inside of it. You have to kind of be on the outside and you have to manage people. Mm. So that was fascinating for me. Yeah. And then the last game of your first season there, you're in a playoff because you were in yeah. the relegation zone. You're, you're in a playoff against Ranheim. How pressurised was that situation? Because were you thinking, if I take this club down in my first season as a manager, then my managerial career is done? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, that, thanks for reminding me. But yeah, you're right. Um, I mean, the, the, the expectations weren't um, massive on me because, like I said, we had a... And that, and that suited me. You know, look, I'm no coward. You know, I, I knew that working with these players, if I could get the best out of them and, and produce a siege mentality, we had a chance. And that first season, we went, we lost six games in a row, I think. And um, but I never lost belief in us. I never lost belief in 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 what we were doing. And um, I think that's the thing. You know, with your players, they look at how your body language is, and if and if they feel as though you've not given up, they won't give up. But the moment you show any frailty, you're, you've got a problem. And, and they never felt that with me. And, and, you know, don't get me wrong, I was going home after some of those defeats and I was, my, my, you know, my chin was on the floor, but I couldn't show the players that it was upsetting me. Um, and, and, you know, we got through it. And by the time we, um, by the time we got to that game, we were full of confidence. Everybody was playing well. You know, I'd heard that Ranheim were very good and this and that, but they, they, in in fairness, we were we were so much better, mm. you know, and and I could see that the boys were enjoying the game. Mm. And then the following season, you know, you turned it around. You really built on that mid-table. You finished against the odds, semi-finalist in the cup. Then after that season, you have to come back to the UK. Um, are you then in a situation where you're applying for jobs straight away and were you expecting to get on the managerial ladder in England straight away? Yeah, I mean, look, I, it's, it's like this. You know, I, I, came, I came back to England and um, I had no expectations, first of all, that I would walk into any job, you know. Even after doing so well? Well, I don't think you can take things for granted like that. Mm. Um, but I did expect to be able to speak to people. Mm. I didn't think that I would, you know, I'd done something that not a lot of people have done, and that's gone abroad and out of my comfort zone for two years. Uh, and, I, and I really kind of felt that this warrants somebody saying, look, we'd just like to talk to you anyway, you know, even if I don't get the job. Um, and you know, I didn't get any interest whatsoever, you know, and, and, you know, I remember there was jobs coming up and I, you know, I'd do what everybody else would say. People say, oh, why don't you ring them and, and or the chief exec or, what, you know, or the, you know, whoever it was in charge and say, can I put my CV in or whatever, or can you let me know what the process is? And I got no response back. And, um, you know, it kind of, it was very disheartening. Um, and I'm not one to kind of turn around and say, well, you know, we, we talk nowadays about opportunities for black coaches. Look, I had a lot to offer. Um, and, you know, again, it's like I said, I would have just liked to have had a conversation. But for me, it, it's quite plain that 
you know, if I was a different colour with my CV and everything that I'd done, somebody would have wanted to talk to me. But I, I also think that, you know, I think sometimes subconsciously people think about your image and what that means to be the 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 leader in a situation. And for some people, they, they can't handle that. You know, somebody like me, me being the head of the ship. And I know there'll be people listening and they might want to say, oh, God, here we go again. I don't really care because I know I've lived it for 52 years. And I'm not bitter about it. I'm just saying it's a fact what we're talking about. Um, but, you know, I'm not bitter. I'm, I'm quite happy because I'll tell you the other thing that I need to make you understand is that um, managing is very, very difficult. It's very stressful. It's long hours. And if I was younger, then I'd have more energy. But I think I'd got to the point where it'd probably taken me five years more, six years more to get where I needed to be, to be in the um, in the shake up, and I and I just you know I just decided it's going to be too. I didn't want to be living away from home for three days a week and have all that stress. I just thought, you know what, Brian, if somebody wanted, if somebody had come to me and said, yes, Brian, we'd like you to do this, then that's a different story. But nobody did, and I thought. I'm not going to chase it. I've got my pride. And mm. I didn't want to be coming across as somebody who was going out there and saying, well, I've applied for 52 jobs. And I've not, I just thought, you know what, Brian, it's not to be. And, you know, that's life. Mm. But massively difficult to accept, I'm sure. I, I, I'm struggling to comprehend the fact that you didn't get any interviews. I got one interview. Uh, this is a joke. I'll tell you this. So I got one interview and I'm not going to name the club or anything, but I just felt I just felt that that was a token gesture in some respects in in terms of box ticking. I got two hours to prepare for this interview. Um, I didn't even get a chance to shave and and make myself look tidy. Um, I went along to the interview and I, and I kind of because I was so underprepared. I remember one person in the room actually going through my Twitter account and picking up on some things that I'd said and actually was. You know, it was, I felt it was an unfair question that came back out of that. And it just made me think, well, okay, um, I had respect for this person, but I lost all respect for him after that. Um, and I just felt, you know what, I've, I've helped somebody to um, tick that box if they get asked. And, and, and I found it quite sad. But again, it was a great experience because what it did do, it, it made me realise that management in here and this country wasn't for me and and i'm grateful to this day that i went abroad for those two years because i learned so much about myself mm. um as a, as a person and what i am actually capable maybe not so much in football but in terms of um leadership um it's told me a lot about the perception we have for people I heard a story the other day which baffled me about somebody who had been for a job and, um, you know, they basically lied at the interview and got this post. And you just think there's nowhere for somebody like myself to lie, you know, and, and um, this person had, had not been actually a, a player. So you all, all everything that you've got isn't out there for everybody to see. And, and this guy had got to a, it risen to a position of, of such a height 
that he was able to do exactly that. It was the Emperor's New Clothes and he got found out. But it's sad that you don't have, you know, I'm a, I'm a believer in flat hierarchy at the tops of organisations. And what I mean by that is you have to have um, specifics making decisions that, it, that protects the integrity of the whole organisation. And that means you might have somebody, let, let's take any club, for example, who's got a CEO who, has, um, who hasn't got a footballing background. How does he? How is he protected from, um, you know, from from a very strong manager who says, "I want this player and I want that player." You know, how can he argue whether or not that's the right person to be bringing into the club? And that's where organisations like football should have somebody alongside that person helping to make those decisions for the benefit of the club. Mm. But it doesn't always happen because, unfortunately, we are we have a very sometimes male dominated um you know industry where we we can't look at um decisions and and and, and hire the right people in the right situations for that particular job now at the age of 15 which is an incredibly pivotal age for a footballer you play for yeah. your amateurs against chapel town a local yeah. derby you break your leg. Did you think that it was all over for you at that point? I, I have to say that at that time, yeah. I mean, because I didn't get an apprenticeship at a club. What what got me through that was the kind of resilience that I'd grown up with. You know, I was I was going, you know, I was catching the bus to go on trials to places like Notts County and you know, I went down to Barnsley, I'd got rejected down there. I went to um I got rejected from Leeds. Uh, but I just felt that you know I wanted to um I, I wanted to be a professional footballer over everything and it was it was the one thing that meant something um that I had to be. I, I was meant to be here for this. Um so so I just kept plugging away and I, I wrote down to Doncaster for a trial when I was um <laughs> I wrote down to Doncaster when my leg was better actually and luckily enough Dave Blakey who was the Chief Scout at Leeds at the time, he was now at Doncaster with Billy Bremner and uh, he invited me down because he'd seen me as a 14-year-old kid. So I was very lucky. He saw, you, he saw the pre-leg break, Brian Dean. So, yeah. Very, <laughs> yeah. So what, what do you remember of your first team debut, February the 4th, 1986, at home to Swansea in the old third division? I remember it was the, Billy Brenner had gone to Leeds and um, Dave Cusack, who was the centre-half, the first team half took over as player-manager. And um, I, I started training with the first team at that point at 17. And um, I think what had happened was in training, I must have given him a smack by accident. And uh, I think he quite liked that. He thought, you know what, he's got something, this kid. And... Um, you know, it, it, you know, I, I kind of, I, I can't remember if somebody had got injured, but anyway, he put me in, and I remember the game being a nil-nil draw, not a particularly good game at Bellevue, but um, you know, I came through it. I got the, uh, I got a headline in the paper. It said "Kid Dina Cracker," um, and I was like, okay, that's good. I, I you know what? It's, it, it's difficult because all my energy went on nervous energy so I always say so I can't remember much about the game 
I'm probably knackered after two minutes, but um, you know, I got through it. And um, yeah, I mean, those days at Doncaster, I'll never forget. I never forget. You know, I'm so grateful to Dave Cusack as well because um, you know he gave me my opportunity, and and he was kind of a massive mentor for me in in ways that you know people wouldn't understand. You know, he, he wasn't everybody's cup of tea, Dave. But and, and we played Mansfield this one. Day. And uh, George Foster, I'm not sure if George is still with us, but um, he was, he was, a, he, he was the manager, and he was a centre back as well, George Foster. And um, <clears throat> we lost one nil, and I got an absolute shelling after the game. And I was I, I, at that point, I was just, I, what am I doing wrong? I, I was like, you know, I can't be this crap. Do you know what I mean? And and I thought I've had enough <clears throat> because if this carries on, I'm 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 not going to be I'm not going to make it as a footballer. And I, and I went to see David the next day, and I said, "Look, I can't take this no more." I said, I, "You know, like it's affecting me. You know, these bollockings. Even if I've scored, I've, you know, I just feel like if I've scored, then somebody else will get it." He says, "There's a lot of promise in you." He says. I'm trying to prepare you for what you're going to need, not only in football, but in life. And um, I, was, I was taken aback. You know, I was like, well, this, it doesn't seem like you like me. I said, listen, Brian, I think the world of you. He said, George Foster says that he would take you tomorrow. Uh, but you're not going there. You, you're going to go further than that. And it was from that moment that I kind of realised that there's a way to manage people and there's a way to, you know, I if, if I hadn't gone to see him and, and he'd said, look, Brian, I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to prepare you. You know, I would have never known. I'd have probably have, you know, sunk away or whatever. But, that was his way of managing. It was a kind of pivotal moment in my life, that was, because I, I gained so much confidence from that, um, from that talk. You know, I just knew that, okay, Brian, you are better than you're being told, you know? Well, so if Dave Cusack was a really positive role model if you like and a, and a great man manager how did that compare then to Dave Mackay who was the next manager who came with a fantastic CV wonderful player for yeah. Tottenham he led Derby <clears throat> County well Brian Clough's old team Derby County to the league title in 1975 it's only a yeah. years later he takes over but I think it's fair to say you didn't see eye to eye did you no not at all <laughs> can't believe it. yeah it was full suppression mode with with Dave Mackay and the problem for him was that I'd had this conversation with Dave Cusack, so <laughs> I knew my worth. You know, I, I kind of like, you can't play that game with me anymore. You know, and I kind of, you know, he never gave me any credit. I remember the year we got relegated to what is now League Two, we scored 40 goals and I got 10 of them. And at the end of the season, I was on buttons anyway, you know, and, um, I went in to see him and he said, oh, um, he said, oh, I've got a contract here for you. It's, it's this. 
And I already knew that there was a lad who was younger than me who had been offered more. Paul Raven. Paul <laughs> Raven, yeah. And Revs, and, and, and the rumour was that Revs had got a, um, Revs had got a signing on for as well. I don't know what, but the point was I was coming from Leeds every day and I had, a, a, you know, I'd just bought my first car and a little brown opal cadet, chocolate brown opal cadet, nice. And, um, you know, I, I was like, nah, this guy's taking a mickey. He's like, you're telling me that I've scored 10 goals in a team that's got relegated and I'm 19, 20 years of age. And he's telling me, and it was just the way I would try to manage me. I thought, I'm not having this, you know, and I knew that I was doing some good things. You know, I, I might have been a little bit uncoordinated long and, you know, and I was still growing, but I knew that I was, I was doing some good things. And um, what I, I, I remember I, I had to, um, I rejected their terms and I, and I, um, I, put, I, I wrote, it was a handwritten letter. I posted it down to the club and um, I, I just waited then and I thought I'm, I can't go back here anyway the guy's totally disrespecting me and I'm not I'm not going out like that you know and then um, you know I, 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 Dave Cusack had spoken to Dave Bassett and then I got a call from Dave Bassett and basically Dave Bassett just basically told me to come down and have talks at the club yeah. and I went down you know what I mean and <clears throat> the truth is, as soon as I step into that car park, you see how the car park is, it kind of, you go into it and then you just see the big Sheffield United, um, the writing on the on the stadium. And I kind of looked at that and I thought, I'm not leaving here unless I sign. I thought all I wanted at that point was a, a stage, you know, and I wanted somewhere where I could develop. And, and I obviously looked at the fact that um, Sheffield United had got relegated I was confident that I could score goals in that division and I, and I kind of played the underdog um, for, for, for the pre-season in that I was just came in I'm just this I'm just this 20 year old boy from Leeds and you know I'm quite happy to wait my turn type of thing but things went really well first game of the season I, I was actually playing so I, I kind of convinced Harry that you know I was good enough for a start and that the first game was away at Reading and I scored as well so but I have to tell you that a lot of a lot of my career, the things I did was based on a fear of failure. Um, I everything that I did was because I didn't want to fail. I didn't. I I was petrified of failing. Well, you started touching on the start of your Sheffield United career, but seventeenth of September, nineteen eighty-eight, a Division Three match. Sheffield United 6, Chester City 1, Tony Agana hat-trick, Brian Dean hat-trick and the pair of you never look back. Why did it work so well with Tony? Tony's a fantastic human being and um, he was somebody that I looked up to at the time. He was older than me, obviously, and, um, you know, he, he just it's like when somebody just says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you, I'm going to lead the way kind of thing, you know, and that's, you know, just kindness, really. You know, and it just it just made me want to give back as much. That makes sense. So even if if I'd have scored a hat trick and he hadn't scored a hat trick, or if he had, you know, I'd have been gutted. And and that's um, you know that's that's a true friendship. 
and and actually, you know, I've got the ball, and uh, he said, you know, he could I could have the ball. I never looked at it and thought, well, what if he'd have wanted the the football, Brian? No, he gave it to me. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So. So it was a great partnership on and off the pitch. Yeah, definitely. He's a he's a sound bloke. Um, and again, you know, we 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 complimented each other because he um, he was left footed, I was right footed, and sometimes he'd find himself down the down the left wing, uh, crossing it in for me, and I'd find myself down the right wing crossing it in for him. Mm. It just worked really well. I mean, the way how Harry put that team together was, um, you know, it was amazing. Really, you know, the the kind of the way how we we play, he played the the team played to our strengths. Yeah. And was it was it quite direct? I'm thinking, I mean, I'm I'm struggling to remember that first period that you had up until the top flight. Was it playing with wingers and being quite direct and getting the ball to you and Tony? Yes, it was. It was a 4-4-2. Um and we just played, we had a lot of pace up front. We had we had Ian Bryson who was good at coming in from the left at the back post. Mm. We had an out and out winger called Alan Roberts. Um, and then we had me and Tony, and, and any in any given situation, we had three players in the box, and it was just right. We'd turn teams, we'd turn teams. Look, what's the point in fanning around with the ball at the back if you've got people who are very quick and you've got very good attackers? Mm. Surely you're only going to negate them if you if you're messing around. And we needed to get out of that division, and we just ran over teams. So that was in the old third tier. Were you still able to run over teams when you won your second successive promotion in what was then the second division? Yeah, we, well, we, we came in and, and obviously you've got bigger teams. You've got the likes of Newcastle, Sunderland, Leeds United, Wolverhampton Wanderers, West Brom, Stoke, um, Watford. You know, Leicester, lots of teams now that are in the Premier League, you know. And, yeah. um, but it was, you know, for a young lad of 21, it was great looking at that fixture list, you know, because as a boy, I looked at this and I thought, wow, I'm thinking, that's how, I'm actually playing against these teams every week, you know, and I'm scoring as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, you must have looked at the fixture list the following season when you're in the top flight and <laughs> thought, wow. First game, <laughs> first game of the season was Liverpool at home. Oh, just a nice, easy start then. That was... Yeah. That was 1990-1991, so they would have been league champions, wouldn't they? Yeah, they were. That's yeah. right. And uh, But again, I managed to score, you know, and I just kept scoring. and sc I just couldn't stop scoring. It was... I, I don't know what it is about me and Sheffield United, but whenever I used to get on that pitch, I, I don't want to turn around and say that I felt like I was invincible, but I did. You know, and I... I and, and, I could almost visualise myself the day before in front of the cop scoring and I'd look at people and I'd pull my left arms a lot. It was, it was such a surreal situation for me. It was like an out-of-body experience. I can, it, you know, and I, I, nothing has come close to, to, um, to that cop at Sheffield United. Nothing yeah. has come close. Yeah. But you say that, by Christmas of 1990, your first season, only four points from the first 16 games. It's funny because we, we never stopped believing in ourselves. And you have to attribute that a lot of that to Dave Bassett, who 
you know, it kept, we, we did different things. We kind of tried to adapt. We had this siege mentality where we looked after each other. Um, all of these things, and we never felt out of it. You know, we'd have a laugh. You know, sometimes we, when we got beat, sometimes he'd put an arm around us. And then there were times where if he thought we'd thrown it away, he'd give us a, he'd give us a bollocking, you know. So it was excellent man management from him. Um, but we, we, you know, if I, if I was scoring goals, it didn't matter. I didn't, I never kind of took myself out of that bubble. You know, I was always, we were all together, mm. you know, and I think yeah. that's what got us through. Yeah, but then the following season, the same thing happened. A terrible first start to the season. Then you end up climbing up to ninth by the end. And you were playing with, I think Chris Wilder was in the side at this point. Did you always think that he was manager potential? I don't know, really. I mean, I just know Tufty was a mad Sheffield United fan, you know, and um, he used to buzz off the fact that we'd win. And I was like, what? <laughs> You're working here, you know what I mean? But he was, he was a true, he um, was a true Sheffield United fan. Mm. Uh, and all his mates were Sheffield United fans. And when we'd win, you'd see them all getting, having a drink and all the rest of it. Um, I mean, if you think about, you know, I think Chris, Chris started his career at Southampton and, um, you know, when you're, when you're a player, a fullback or somebody, you look at the game differently and he's, you know, I know that Chris used to, you know, used to take a Sunday league team and all the rest of it. And he was involved with um, Sunday league because of some of his mates in Sheffield were playing and so on. So, you know, there might have been, it might have been at the back of his mind all the time. But, you know, Chris has been managing for 20 years now. And that's what people don't realise that, you know, it's it's taken a long time to get to the top, but he belongs at the top. Um, you know, there's no doubt about that. It's not as easy as people think. You know, look, some people get chewed into positions and other people have to work hard and, you know, he deserves everything that he's got. I've got, you know, when I, when I think that, when I was at Leicester, Chris came down to watch training and he was with um, Mickey Adams and Alan Cork were, the, were, were in charge at Leicester at the time. And, um, you know, when, I, when you think about it now, he was learning his trade. Learning his trade and... And there was I, you know, I was still going out in front of the um, in front of the crowds at Leicester, and I was still scoring lots of goals and and doing well. And you know, Chris was at a different, you know, he was at a different point in his life where he didn't know what was going to happen next, you know. But you know, it's worked out for him, and, and good luck to him. Yeah, good on him. And the following season in the Premier League. Did it feel like a whole different ball game as the saying went, as the Sky Sports messages went? Yeah, it did because you had all the um, Sky Sports um, glamour girls, and you know you had all the everybody had a new kit, and you know we, there were some subtle differences, and um, yeah, it, it, we knew now that we were going to get more than maybe ten minutes on match of the day. You know, all of a sudden we were going to be like household celebrities, and and all the rest of it, and everything else that was going to come with it. So, um, yeah, very interesting. 
one of the big trivia questions is who scored the first ever Premier League goal? Answer Brian Dean after four minutes and 36 seconds against Manchester United. A Carl Bradshaw long throw. Clayton Blackmore flicked it onto you quite handily and you nipped in front of Gary Pallister. But did it feel like a big deal at the time? And if not, when did it start feeling like a big deal? When did people start asking you about it? And when I, when I packed in. Okay, so that lot that much further ahead, sort of fifteen yeah. years further on. Yeah, yeah. Um, it never. It was only when people started seeing me out because obviously when you're playing, you know, I think that rival fans don't want to have a lot to do with you. You know, you you know, he plays for them. Is this or is that or whatever? And and you know, I always used to have my guard up. You know, because you know, I we've all been abused by people you know, out in the street and whatever. So I never used to want to engage with anybody. But I think when you kind of finish playing, you become neutral. Um, what were the options at the end of that campaign? Could you have stayed at Sheffield United or were you determined to push through a move at the time? No, I mean, there was... <laughs> The, the the thing was, we, we had a bit of a, mis, not a misunderstanding, but I had a conversation with the manager at the beginning of that season. And, um, you know, I, I never really wanted to leave Sheffield United, but I also felt that there, it was, in that last season, there were times where I felt that the, um, that I didn't get any support. And when I say support, I don't mean necessarily on the pitch. But I felt that there were some articles that were coming out at times that were targeting me. And I thought, this isn't fair. You know, and, and, and whether or not we were scoring or not, it's not all down to Brian Dean. Or, you know, there was an article came out that, you know, David said, oh, well, you know, when my players come back from international duty, all they talk about is cars and, and houses. And I'm like, it's only all about me and Glyn Hodges. And I thought, that that's, doesn't, and and I felt that at that time I was being set up, you know, so because the the press would behave differently then, you know, they had to go to the manager to get their stories, and they couldn't afford to fall out with the manager, and you know once once you know the fans start hearing about oh he's talking about cars or he's talking about houses, they're building up, they're saying oh well he's giving it big time now. You know what I mean? It's like I've gone big time or whatever. And then, so so I was like, "Whoa, this ain't right." And and what had, what had what had also happened was that it was the uh, was it that season? Yeah, it was that season that I Harry had basically accused me of being tapped up when I was on international duty, uh, and it turned out because I got we played Arsenal away, and I. Um, I had to come off after 20 minutes and it was, you know, I just felt shocking. And then he pulled me in on the Monday and he said, um, he says, I think he said, you haven't been the same player since you've come back from international duty. He says, I think you've been tapped up. And I said, well, what are you on about? He says, well, you're not the same player. He says, listen, I've got an offer on the table from Crystal Palace. He says, Ian Wright has just gone to Arsenal and they put a bid in for you. I was like, I said, well, listen, I said, there's something not right with me at the moment. I don't feel myself. I said, but if you want me to leave, then maybe I can go at the end of the season. 
and um, <clears throat> turned out I had glandular fever. Right. And that is and, really debilitating, isn't it? Oh, God, yeah. And it, it was only when I looked back that I realised that something was wrong, you know, like I was waking up sweating buckets. You know, so anyway, we played Wigan on the Tuesday and um, we won 2-1, I think, and I scored both the goals, but I felt absolute, I thought I was going to die going on to the coach the next day. Sorry, after the game. And then um, when I, when I the, on the Wednesday, I came in, I couldn't sleep. My tonsils were like, I couldn't breathe. And I, I said to French, I said, French, listen, there's something wrong with me. I need a blood test. And that's when I found out I'd had it for six weeks. You know, and, and it was, I got a half, half-assed apology from Harry. You right. know, and it, but it wasn't an apology, but it like, you know, but that I, I kind of, I've started to feel that, I, you know, I didn't have him in my corner as much then, mm. you know, and all I was doing was I was in survival mode still, you know, because I knew that we weren't talking about the kind of money that you're talking about now. You know, I was working to make sure that I stayed on the top level, you know, with yeah. little security, you know? Yeah. Well, can you give us an indication of what the wage levels were like in sort of 1992, 93? Wages were probably between 150 and sort of like 400 for the top, top players. £1,000 a year, unlike, yeah. the, unlike the same figure that some people yeah. are doing per week yeah. nowadays, yeah. As you're talking about, it could be top wages at most clubs might have been two or £3,000 a week. And you're talking about England players, you know, you might have had most of the England squad on no more than a quarter of five grand a week. Yeah. So it was a very different game, a very different game financially and everything yeah. about it, you know. So why did you, why did you decide then to go to Leeds? Was that just a case of going home, if you like, and what other offers were on the table? It wasn't a case of going home. Um, you know, I think that a lot of, a lot of teams, I think felt that I was going to join Leeds anyway. You know, there was a few other clubs that came in. I heard that there were rumours about other clubs, but I think that everybody just assumed that I was going to join Leeds. You know, um, Sheffield, United, Sheffield Wednesday came in with a bid, but that would have been impossible. Um, so yeah, it was, um, it was, it was, yeah, it was there or kind of stay where I was. I think. Mm. So then you walk into a dressing room of a team who'd won the league title two years before, but then the first season in the Premier League, the first season without the back pass rule, um, they didn't win a game away from home. So what kind of environment did you walk into? Was it a club that needed a bit of a lift and was it quite a, a dominant character dressing room like your Strachan's, your Gary McAllister's? Yeah, it was very much like that. I think that there was a kind of... I mean, don't get me wrong, it was a... But you know, the, like the lads there, some great lads there, Mel Sterling, Rod Wallace, um, you know, all of them, David Rowcastle, um, Chris White, Chris Fairclough, Gary Speed, Dave Batty. I went to school with Bats, um, John Newsom, Kevin Sharp, Noel Whelan, Gary Kelly, um, Tony DeRigo, um, 
you know, I mean, serious squad, you know, I mean, um, it was a great squad, but it, I did, yeah, of course, Strack and, and Macker as well. Mm. And um, I think perhaps there was, I mean, Gordon Strack and legendary player. Do you know what I mean? And, and um, you know, Gary McCasher's excellent footballer. Um, <clears throat> I think the difficulty for me in that first year was that I'd been used to playing a certain way and getting the ball quickly, running at people, um, you know, not so much playing with my back to goal. And when I went to Leeds, I had to play with my back squarely to goal. Mm. And it just didn't suit my game. And I didn't understand it. I wasn't developing. I wasn't, you know, I mean, I could go now. If I, I could work on a 1v1, one-to-one basis, or I could work with a forward line. Yeah. Um, and I didn't get that. It was just, right, practice your drills. Um, whereas I think now you get, there's a lot more visuals and all the rest of it, and you know where to go, you know what angles to come off at, and, and I, and I felt again that I was in this kind of, you've got to be successful. So I was putting a lot of pressure on myself as well. Mm. Um, so, um, so yeah, it was, it was a tough, and, and I think the other thing that I did, which I would never ever do again was I kind of tried to fit in. Mm. Whereas I should have just gone, listen, this is me. You know, I've been successful before I'd gone there. And and I was trying to then fit in with the load of people who didn't really give a damn about me. They were like, everybody's, it's every man for himself, you know. So I think it was only after the first year that I came home and had a good look at myself. And I'd had, a, I'd had an argument with my brother and he said, look, you need to kind of address some of the issues you might have at, at work. And And that's what I did. You know, I said, right, okay, well, this is how I'm going to do it this year. If people don't like it, tough. I'll have it out with you. You know, I won't just accept any kind of crap that I was getting served. Mm. You know, and, and, and as soon as I did that and I went back to some of the basics that I was doing in terms of I was training on my own, in my own time, Tuesday and Thursday. Um, I was kind of going to see somebody with a strength and conditioning coach. Um, I was doing ladder work. Not long before anybody was doing any of that stuff we were doing that at Sheffield United and I'd, I'd kind of gone to Leeds and thought, right, I've made it now. Mm. You know what I mean? And, and, and it just kind of didn't happen that way. You know, you've got to work every day, you know? So I, I stopped kind of doing the weights. I stopped doing the extra work and stuff like that. And then I, I went back to that in the second year. And as soon as I did that, everything came back. Mm. You know, your confidence comes back. Um, you kind of, you know, you, that feeling of invincibility came back that I'd had uh, and, and that I could do anything on the pitch. And I, I actually won player of the year that year, you know. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and the good thing was, was that a lot of the lads started coming down and training with me at Don Valley. You know, it started with Rod Wallace and then, and then Gary, sorry, John Pemberton came down, Gary Speed came down. Carlton Palmer came down. That you know, everybody started coming down, and then we we finished the season so strongly it was unbelievable. And then from there, that's when a lot of clubs started getting a lot of SNC coaches because we were absolutely steamrolling teams. You know, they just couldn't cope with us. You know, 
um, and we were doing all of this extra work and we got the rewards at the end of it because we qualified for Europe. Yeah. I mean, it seems crazy to think that you had to do that in your own time because obviously in modern professional football environments, you have sessions like that a couple of times a week or whatever, and then yeah. you'll have a break and there's food and then you'll go out and do a football session. So yeah. it was, so back in the day then, was it literally just training for an hour and a half a day and have Wednesdays off or whatever? Was it still yeah, like well, that? I mean, yeah, you'd, you know, you'd have double days as well. I mean, every club's different, but um, I think that the gains that you got from doing this kind of training back in them days were like, you could ask 10%. I'll give you an example. When we first started using the, a guy called Ed Baranowski was when you just mentioned we had four points at Christmas mm. and Ed came in and basically all the squad started working with Ed and we started steamrolling teams and we changed our diets, everything. And um, we went up the division and we, I think we finished 12th or whatever it was, you know, but the point was nobody else was doing it and teams hated playing against us because we, we were just so much fitter than them, stronger. And we were, you know, we beat Tottenham 6-0, we beat Chelsea 5-0, you know, we beat Manchester United, we beat Forest, we beat, beat everybody. Mm. The only team I don't think we beat was Arsenal. Yeah. You know, we beat Liverpool, everybody. Yeah. But the thing is, you think about Howard Wilkinson, Sergeant Wilco, I just naturally assumed he would be doing lots of fitness sessions. So it seems strange that you're having to take it upon yourself to do it. So what were his training sessions like? Yeah, they were, they were good. They were structured. I mean, things, training sessions have changed now. And when you talk about working at an intensity now, it's a lot different to how it was then. You know, you, you know, it's a lot more scientific now, even the kind of areas you work in. So I'll give you an example. Um, back in them days, you know, if you were having a possession session, you might have had a possession session over half a pitch, right? And it's basically, you might have three teams of six. You lose the ball, your team has to win the ball back, right? But it might be over, and it, and basically something like that just turns into a switch the ball session. What you get now is you get you might have a forty by forty with the same numbers, but because there's so much more intensity, there's more bodies in a smaller area. You've got to think, you've got to understand where your next pass is all the time, and that's working at that level of intensity that gets your fitness and your sharpness. Mm. So it doesn't end up being a, a like a a, a, a just a running session you, t you, you you it's proper football work mm. you know and um, <clears throat> you know it's changed now and it never used to be like that you know overloads underloads when i say overloads i mean you might have you might have three teams of four with two floating players who are in you know or in you know so you end up with an overload of six v four for example you know so those are the kind of things that, you know, and I'm, I'm sure, I mean, it's been a while since I've been a coach and a manager, so I'm sure things have changed, but you would build that structure into a, uh, into a session on a day. You know, you work specifically on different outcomes. Um, and, and so I think there were just generic things we were doing back in them days. Mm. You know, there were like drills, you know, set up on a pitch. And we had natural ability. <clears throat> I mean, I'm convinced that 
you know, the players we had in them days, if we'd have had that kind of training, we'd have developed a lot better because we'd have had more awareness of our, look, we were all decent players. We had some good players, but we'd have been better. It was the training, it was the training techniques that have accelerated, accelerated and advanced players' development in, in recent years, no doubt. And what about diet and refueling habits? Diet, absolutely. Um, we, we were, like I said, we were doing that. We started with the sports science. Um, I think dieting, refueling. I also think training facilities have played a massive role. You know, when, when, when I think about some of the areas that we used to train on, there was no quality. You look at, tra you look at football pitches now, unbelievable. We never had this. You know, some, some training pitches now are better than actual stadiums. Yeah. So how do you look back on your time at Leeds? Uh, you said you, uh, you enjoyed it under George Graham, but then you left in the summer of 1997 <clears throat> to go back to your old club, Sheffield United. So why Sheffield United and, and what were your overall feelings about your time at Leeds? I enjoyed my time. I mean, it's my hometown. I, I love playing for Leeds. I mean, you know, it's, you know it, it was difficult at times because I put so much pressure on myself. And um, because of that, I didn't enjoy my first year. It's quite funny, actually. My best mates, um, Andrew, Paul and Jeff, they used to call me Wacko Jacko because <laughs> <laughs> I never used to come out. <laughs> I was like, because what had happened was I, I, where I lived, I had, some, I had, electric, I had electric gates and... Um, you know, if I didn't play well or if I didn't do well, I'd be, I'd be really upset. I wouldn't want to talk to anybody. So, they, you, know, you know, we were close enough for them to be able to call me that wacko jacko, you know what I mean? It's like I was living behind Netherlands. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, it was, it was a great... Because, look, when things went well there, it was one of the happiest times of my life. When I scored that goal for Leeds against Tottenham away, and we qualified for Europe, and, and the times surrounding all that season, that second season, we had some brilliant times. And, you know, I remember coming home on the coach and, um, you know, that we, the bucket heads were playing. Um, <laughs> these sounds fall into my, you know, and we were just drinking on, you know, we're drinking champagne, you know, and, then we were going to Marbella on holiday and then, you know, the next year we had a good season and then it all came apart when we went to the cup final. I mean, even that was quite funny in that, you know, I remember at the time that um, I was really upset because I wasn't playing and um, I remember Rod, Rod and um, Phil Massinger had been bombed, so they weren't even on the subs bench and... Um, when I got told to go warm up, I could see them behind the bench and they were laughing their heads off at me because they knew I was really angry because I, I thought I should have been playing. And I couldn't help but like looking up at them and just laughing as well, you know. It was like, but I was upset. But, you know, you can't, everything's an experience and, um, you know, some of those experiences at Leeds were, I'd, I'd, I'd do it all again, even the bad times, you know. I mean, look, Howard Wilkinson did a fantastic job for Leeds United. He brought Leeds United into the modern era. I watched the, um, the programme about Leeds United and he, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they put a statue up of him for what he did for that club. Mm. You know what I mean? 
we didn't always see eye to eye, but I respect him. Um, you have to respect him. He won the title. Do you know what I mean? He assembled an unbelievable squad. You know, some of the players that that squad was, and, and I mean, they got a lot of ass. They got a lot of stick because they underperformed. You know, he brought Eric Cantona over. I mean, look, you know, there's no doubt in, and, and Leeds was a brilliant place to be. You left Leeds in the summer of 97, didn't you? And, and you went back to Sheffield United, which seemed like a, a slightly strange move. What, why did you go back there? And could you have stayed in the top flight? Yeah, I could have done. I, I was actually looking at perhaps going abroad. Mm. I, I was speaking to Feyenoord about going to going over there on a free. Okay. But, um, there was something dodgy about the deal that I didn't like. There's so many people in and around football now who are there to exploit and get as much money out of it for themselves that you don't see the wood for the trees mm. um, in effect. You know, if you're a player, you're thinking, well, I trust this guy. He's doing everything he can for me. And it's only when you kind of look back that you can say, well, I'm not sure about this. Don't get me wrong. I'm not tiring everybody with the same brush, but I would say that some of the horror stories I've heard about even recently have kind of made me think that, you know, it's that there needs to be a, a real kind of, um, a re a, an overhaul of the kind of education of, of, of players, um, you know, it's, it's quite shocking. And uh, like that one particular instance, I remember, like I said, I was, I was talking to this agent um, and he was obviously trying to put me into that club and was basically saying, well, this is what they're going to pay. I'm thinking, well, what is the benefit of me going over there on a free? Mm. Apart, you know, basically... You're just, you're basically, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Trafficking me. <laughs> That's what it was. Him and, and my agent at the time was nowhere to be seen because he was in on it. But he was letting this guy who had taken a lot of um, players abroad from England, he was working with him. So... Right. You know, he he thought, well, I don't need to say anything. And I thought, nah, not really sure about this. Well, you ended up having a go at playing abroad, didn't you? A few months into your Sheffield United stint for the second time, you ended up in Benf in Portugal with Benfica, a massive global club. And yeah, how did that move come about? And did you enjoy your time there? Yeah, I mean, look, I, it was again, it's a it's a defining moment for me. I'd always wanted to go abroad if it was going to be the right opportunity. And um, I suppose it was a case of <laughs> when the opportunity came up, it was a case of, okay, put your money where your mouth is, Brian, you know, now you've got your opportunity. Let's see, let's see if you can actually um, back it up. And mm. um, so, yeah, there was a little bit of that. I was absolutely petrified in some ways because, you know, I, I'd, um, I'd basically kind of said, right, okay, Brian, I want to go abroad. There, there'd been opportunities before. It didn't happen. And then all of a sudden, one of the biggest cl clubs in, in, in Europe comes in for you. If I'd have turned that down, I'd have looked like a bit of an idiot, really. Mm. You know, but there were also a lot of things happening 
at Sheffield United as well that weren't very savoury behind the scenes. And um, you know, I yeah, that let, let's just leave it at that, shall we? <laughs> but um, but yeah, but not nothing to do with the club or the integrity of the the people who work there now. It's just that you know, I I, I bought into something. Um, where I, I was told that, look, we're going for it, we're going up. You know, there was all kinds of things that had happened, like they'd, they'd, they'd turn the club into a public limited company. Um, and all these things started to unravel. And, um, you know, it, it was, there was other agendas going on. And all I was interested in was, I didn't want to ruin my legacy at the club, you see. Mm. So, so for me... I, I, I'd gone there, I had an opportunity to sign a two-year contract, which said, no, listen, I signed a one-year contract, and if it looks like we're going to go up, I'm quite happy to sign a two-year contract because, you know, I had a good contract, and, but I thought if, if I have this contract in this division for two years then, and we don't go up, then it's, it's not realistic. Um, I got also a lot of promises made to me which at the time the owners didn't come through with. I was felt quite uneasy about one or two things, but mm. you know, I just wanted to play football at the end of the day. And you did that with several other British players out in Benfica. <clears throat> You've seen some of the goals on YouTube that you scored against Porto and Sporting Lisbon. They looked yeah. like really big games and the fans took to you as well. So it looked like you settled in okay. Yeah, I did. I mean, I, I, what what happened was in the first year I went out there, there weren't um, there was only myself and Scott Minto who had who were um, at the club, and then we qualified for Europe, and um, we brought in um, several others, several other English players. Well, well, not several. Matt, Matt Pembridge and Mickey Thomas came in, um, but I my, my time got cut short, and then after that, there was I think Gary Charles. Steve Hartness, Dean Saunders came over as well, but I'd already gone back. Mm. So I didn't really, I wasn't out there with a large English contingent. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's, it's funny how things are viewed because obviously when you bring in that many English players, I think that, um, you know, it, it kind of, it became an us versus them situation for, the, for those lads who had gone over there with, with Graham. Mm. Um, whereas I think when I was there, I, I had to kind of sink or swim. Uh, and again, I put myself into one of these situations where, you know, I, if I'd have gone over there and it had failed, I'd have been, you know, it could have been horrible for me because what was I going to come back to? Mm. You know, it's really funny because, you know, they do, when you watch Real Madrid, they have this, um, they always have like the people who they sign that they, um, they do, you know, they keep up the ball and stuff like that. And they did that with me. And I was like, I thought, okay, I'm not going to start balancing the ball on the back of my neck or anything like that. You know, and I thought, oh God. <laughs> so, but I did, you know, you, you know, I had my jeans on and, you know, but it's one of them where it's so, that is probably one of the most nervous, nerve wracking things. I don't know if you've seen the guy Dembele who went to Barcelona. Um, a French, it's French international now. Mm. He's he's a really good player, but he did it, and I, and I, and you can look at it on YouTube. And I'm looking at, it, I'm thinking, is he taking a mick here? Because he's trying to keep the ball up and everything, and it's like just going all over the place. You think, hang on, 
is this is he having a lot is he done this for a joke but the thing is if you look at that player he's a great player but yeah. i just thought what's going on and and i almost felt like okay if i do two kick, kick ups and it and the ball shoots off over there i'm going to get absolutely battered you know <laughs> Because they, they, they did have that. And there was like people in the stands kind of like there to greet you. Like, it's like a tradition. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, no, it was, um, yeah, a lot of, lot of pressure, a lot of expectation. And like yeah. I say, the times where you're playing in front of 60,000, 70,000 people, yeah. um, the white handkerchiefs coming out at 15 minutes gone because you've not scored yet. And um, luckily I played with a guy called Nuno Gomez, who's... Uh, very good player. I'm sure you've heard of him. Yeah. Um, and and so there was less pressure on me to score because Nuno was really good in the box, and then it allowed me to play my way into the games. Yeah. And did you really embrace the lifestyle? Enjoy living in Lisbon? Did you try and learn the language at all? I mean, how can you not enjoy the lifestyle? You know, I, I was renting an apartment uh, with a view from my bedroom of the Atlantic. <laughs> you know, and like. In January, I'm wearing T-shirts. You know, I'm going for, um, I'm having my lunch on the beach. I'm, I'm eating grilled sea bass in, in garlic butter with um, potatoes, sautéed potatoes and sautéed vegetables, and then walking it off with an ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I mean, how can you not kind of enjoy that? Uh, it was... It was amazing. But obviously, you know, the, for all of that, you've then got to still go out and produce, haven't you? Because if you don't produce, you're out. So, uh, no, it was, it was great, though. Um, I mean, I, I always, I'd always recommend players to go abroad. But, of course, you know, the Premier League is where the best contracts are. So, um, you know, we're, we're not going to see many players going abroad now. Did you enjoy working with Graham Sooners? I did. Um, I, I, I really like Graham. I think he's... Graham's one of them people, right, who he either... If he doesn't like you, he doesn't like you. And I, I know he had... There was, a, there was a player in the changing rooms who he just couldn't get on with. And it was like... Yeah, I mean, you might have seen him on Sky talking about certain players, but it was like... If he, didn't, if he doesn't like you, I just get the feeling that he's never going to like you. You know what I mean? And... Um, there was this Brazilian player we had called Amaral, actually a very good player, played for the national team and everything. But Graham just didn't like his work ethic, I think, because Amaral would come in every day with his Walkman on and he liked his samba. You know, so, and he'd, he'd come in with a pair of flip-flops on. And you know Graham, he's, he's a very smart guy. He looks well-groomed and everything. And he'd just look at it. I could tell he was like looking at it just to say, Look at this guy, you know what I mean? <laughs> but um, I got on all right with Graham. And I think the reason why I got on all right with him was because we were in a situation where we had to have each other's backs. You know, he'd shown the faith to bring me over there. And again, I'd sort of like thought, well, I don't want to let him down. Yeah. So, so I, um, I did my best. And again, it's like I said, you can only do your best. I remember <clears throat> I actually had uh, plantar fasciitis which is very painful. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's, you know the tendon on the sole of your foot? Oh, I know exactly what you mean, yeah. I snapped it. Mm. I snapped it and at half time I had this, I, I, you know, I took, my, um, I took my boot off and, and it, would, it had all swollen and there was blood 
all you know you could see the blood and and I and I wanted to carry on we we were I think we were nil nil and we were playing down on the south coast and um I, 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 I dare I was got oh my god I've got to tell him that I've snapped me um plantar I've, I've got you know my plantar fascia was um ruptured I was like oh, I can't tell him and I remember he was doing his team talk and I says and he, and I, I, I was, I was that in awe, you know, because that's that was the kind of area you come from where you kind of you don't want to let anybody down, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, but it was like, all right, we're gonna have to make a change. So I was out for about six weeks with that. It's a horrible thing, it is, you know. Yeah. But, um, yeah. But you had a good time there. Why did you leave then? We weren't getting paid. <laughs> that's a very good reason. <laughs> yeah. Um, we weren't getting paid. The um, there were all kinds of issues with the club, and you know the the president was coming in every two minutes and going, you know we we sometimes we'd go seven weeks without getting paid, and if you go eight weeks without getting paid, then you're allowed to walk out on a free transfer. So they'd always kind of pay us one month's money, you know, right. so that they were and and um, and we just that happened over a long period of time and. I think I just got sick. Everybody got sick of it. I, I, I actually wanted to stay out abroad. Um, but when that started happening, it just wore me down, you know. And mm. um, I think it was a case of then, you know, look, maybe it's a good idea to kind of get back home, you know. And, you know, it's very kind of Hollywood. The newspapers used to come and watch every game, um, every training session. Um, and then, you know, I remember there was a, <clears throat> I remember um, when I came back, Mickey had a, an incident <laughs> where he had a, he had a training ground bust up with another player called Kandorov and, and that made about three pages, like, you know, when there were, there were handbags, uh, Mickey, Mickey, Tom, him and Mickey Thomas had a, had a scrap and, um, you know, but that's, that's the culture and that was the, that's the profile of the club. It was, it's a huge club. Did Mickey get I the think, better of him? Yeah, he did. And you know what? I wanted to knock his head off as well once. We were in a nightclub and he's one of them guys, Kandorov, Sergei Kandorov. I think he's got a job, a big job in the Ukraine now, but it's one of them when he's had a drink. You know, you know when people have had a drink and they want to touch you all the time and they kind of try to test your strength and stuff. Hmm. And I thought, I'm going to have to knock him out in a minute. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I get very sensitive around people when they've had a drink. You know, I don't like it. <laughs> well, because people could blow up at any stage, can't they? But yeah. that would have that would have been more than three pages, Brian, in the paper. Well, yeah, it might have ended up being a lot more. Yeah, <laughs> might have just been coming home now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it might have been a tough twenty years. Yeah, but from yeah. from Lisbon to Middlesbrough, crikey! I mean, Middlesbrough, yeah. with all due respect, is not the Hollywood lifestyle that you spoke about in Lisbon. Oh. You'd also scored the goal for Leeds that sent them down in May 1997. I imagine Oops, yeah. remembered that. But uh, yeah. you went into a dressing room with some top players, didn't you? Yeah, I did. There was, you know, you know there was some very good players. And, and the thing with what happened was they recruited some very good players as well um, mm. over the period of time. I was there some proper world-class players, you know, Christian Carimbo, Christian Ziga, Alan Boxic, um, to name a few. Gaza was there when I was there. Um, you know, Gary Pallister, some excellent players. Mark Swartzer. Yeah, some some real Janino. How can I forget Janino? The absolute the man. Um, so yeah, no, it was a it was 
you know, one thing people people in the northeast are very proud of their football, um, and Middlesbrough is, you know, at that time it was it was a great club. Um, I know they've kind of dropped out of the Premier League since, and you know things have been quite difficult for them, but. Um, Absolutely, um, absolute fantastic uh, team and um, great club, great chairman. Mm. Uh, look, I didn't have my greatest spell there, but again, I tried to give everything. And I think under the circumstances, I think what people don't realise sometimes is as a forward, you know, I, I did a lot more work than I did in the box. Mm. And, um, you know, I don't think I got the amount of chances that I was hoping for. Um so I'm not going to beat myself up too much on that, but that's, you know, it just didn't happen. But, you know, you can only do your best and you can only give as much as you can, you know? Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned some of those names. Janino looked like Middlesbrough was in his blood. You know, he looked yes. like it. he sweated blood for that football club, which was great to see because they had a bit of a reputation, Middlesbrough, rightly or wrongly, that some players would go there just for the dough because they were paying a lot, weren't they? Yeah, well, they had to um, because of the circumstances, like you say. But, yeah, look, I, I, I mean, Brian Robson's a great manager to play for. I mean, you know, as a, as a guy, everybody wanted to play for him. Everybody wanted to do well for him. Viv was brilliant. Mm. Loved working with Viv Anderson um, and Gordon, Gordon McQueen as well. Um, I mean, we could have been better. You know, we could have been better uh, uh, structured. Um, but, you know... I, it, it it was what it was. We 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 did okay. Um, mm. So um, yeah, they, but they did they did pay well. Um, mm. Not that I was one of the top paid players. I mean, I wouldn't have minded a year on what Alec Boxic was earning. Um, <laughs> that would have been nice. But um, but you know, it was it had a bit of glamour about it. You know, a bit of Hollywood. Yeah. So yeah, yeah it was yeah. cool. There was, a, there was a period that always kind of fascinated me because Brian Robson was my boyhood hero, but it looked like he just couldn't get the best out of the players anymore. And it seemed like a really brave but possibly foolhardy decision to then bring Terra Venables in with Brian Robson working under him. I'd never seen anything like that before. What was the atmosphere like at the club around that stage? Yeah, it was it was a difficult situation because I think the team needed a lift, and um, it, it's I mean it just shows you that the man he was he wasn't thinking about himself because I think some people would have just kind of thought no I'm gonna you know I, I'm I'm it's me or it's my way or the highway but Robbo brought somebody in who he thought could keep the club stabilised um, which he did and. You know, it's not an easy situation. If I look at myself as a as a coach or manager and, and doing that and bringing somebody in of that kind of, um, you know, stature um, and, and you then as a player, you're kind of, you're looking and you're thinking, well, who should I look at for instruction? Do I look at who's the gaffer? You know, who's, is it Terry? Is it Brian? Do, do you know what I mean? It was It was a difficult situation. And, and I think as players, we all try to be as respectful as possible. Um, but it did sort of like, you know, um, Terry Venables did take over and he did sort of like start, you know, dictating and being the manager, as it were. Um, so it, was, it, wasn't a, it was a little bit awkward, but I think, 
you know, it wasn't it wasn't awkward in the sense that you know we had full respect for Brian and 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 he's the bigger man at the end of the day for recognizing the situation and thinking, well, we need some we need another voice, you know, and and, and I think that it was th- it was the right decision for him to do that and stay at the club, you know, and and also with Viv and Gordon, you know, the club had grown with those guys and at that particular time it, it was the right thing to do, I think. Yeah. And I'll never forget the picture when Brian Robson became player manager at Middlesbrough. I don't know if you remember this. They couldn't have made it more blatant to give the message that Brian had come in as a player manager. He was wearing football boots, socks and shorts, and then a suit jacket and a tie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there might be something in that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But you you were probably hoping and expecting that Terry Venables was going to stay on at the end of that season, but... Unfortunately not. And Steve McLaren came in and I think I'm right in saying that you're not his biggest fan. No, because because I've managed myself now, uh, I kind of, look, I, I'm not saying that I'm any kind of brilliant man. I only had two years at it, but I don't know what it's like to be a people person. I do know, I, do, I have had a 21-year career as a player and as much as I haven't, um, won anything as such I've been in some very successful changing rooms I've played with some world class players and I do know how players think and, and I think that's one of my biggest attributes is that I'm, I'm quite em- empathetic is that the right word? Yep and I just felt that you know <clears throat> when Steve McLaren came in you know he did a couple of things which I, I kind of I'll never forget I could never do myself um well, well, it was he brought in a guy who was a um, what was Bill Bezik? Just trying to think what he's psychologist was he? Bill? So, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and he, he he came in and he, he within the first few days, Steve McLaren had pulled me into the office and said, "Look, you're not in my plans. You can go." And I was like, "Whoa, blimey!" You know, he said, "You know, we've got seven forwards, and you're basically at the bottom of the list." So I was like, that was a blow. You know what I mean? And, it, and he'd not seen me play, not seen me train. He just thought, you're out. Mm. <clears throat> and, and if I look back now, I remember he did the same to David Beckham with the England captaincy. We just blew him out as soon as he got the, um, the role. So, um, so anyway, Bill Bezik comes in and starts doing a session. And... Bear in mind, have told me and a few other lads that um, were not in their plans. He's then having this session, and it probably was quite a generic one. And um, he's talking about going on a journey. Are you coming on the journey? Are you on the bus? All this bullshit. And I'm sat there in this meeting, and obviously you've got people in there who he wants to buy into them. And then there's me and a few others, and it's like, we're going on a journey. Are you getting on the bus? I'm like, what, the, what is this fool talking about? I've been told that I'm surplus to requirements. Why did you, what, you know, if you're going to do that, why, why am I in the room? I can't get a ticket to that bus. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Absolute foolishness. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, bad man management, first of all. So, that was, that was the first thing. And then, he, he, you know, he said, look, you're not going to play, blah, blah, blah. It was, I mean, he, he, couldn't have, he couldn't have said that 
he couldn't have wanted me out of the club more in, in terms of, you know, how he explained. You know, I, I, it was just so disrespectful. And, um, you know, I kind of went away. I thought, well, no, I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight. I'm not going anywhere. He said, look, West Brom have come in for you. They want you on loan. Da, da, da. I was like, oh, I want to, you know, I'm here. You know, I live an hour down the road, you know, and, and I want to fight for my place. It's a new season. I want to fight. And he was adamant. And then what happened was uh, in pre-season, we played Preston away. And um, you know what he did? He, he gave, he played the whole of the squad apart from me. So how big and, was that squad? Probably and, 20 well, players, yeah. Well, there was like, yeah, and some of the players had not even played in the first team before. Right. And then just at the end, I mean, my, I was like, because it's embarrassing. For me, I was like, it hurt. And then he comes up to me at the end and he was acting, oh, Brian, I'm so sorry. You know, I, I, I didn't realise, I, I looked around and, and I thought, and I went, yeah, no problem. And I wanted to cry. You know, but I wanted to also knock him out. Do you know what I mean? Because you can't disrespect somebody that way who's a senior professional. But I, I gave him the benefit of the doubt. I thought, okay, maybe he didn't see me, whatever. But then <clears throat> Alan Boxic got injured and um, they, they were struggling. And, you know, so, so I came in and I played and I, I, I had some good... I had some good performances, you know, I, I kind of, um, you know, I think the fans respected my endeavour. In fact, they had a song called We Want a Team of Brian Deans. <laughs> we all, what is it, a team of Brian, something like that anyway. So anyway, anyway, so Alan Boxic was out for a while and then Alan came back and we, he tried to play us both together. And look, Alan Boxic was a number one striker there. I don't have an issue with that. He was... He was the best player we had at the club. But, you know, the way how he then kind of basically dashed me to the side again after that, it was like, he'd give me a custard pie when he first came in and then he'd give me another one. But this one had a cherry on. <laughs> you know what I mean? It had a cherry on and it was like, well, yeah, thanks, Brian, but guess what? Alan's back now, so off your pop. It was like that, and it, it crushed me. And, um, you know, because he's saying, oh, you can go, and I was like, well, I'm not going. And, we, you know, we started talking about things like money, which I don't, I wasn't there, you know, the money wasn't, it was important, of course money's important, but my pride was more important. And, you know, I was willing to, I wanted to stay and fight. I just wanted a chance to fight. And he didn't give me that. And, and I think the kind of, when I realised I had to leave there was we, we had some fitness training. We had, we had a bleep test in the gym. And, um, you know, all this had happened and I was, I was furious. I was going in every day and I thought, you know what? I don't care. I'm going to stick my head down. I'm going to, you know, no one's going to mess with me because I'm not a man to be messed with when I'm angry. But we were doing this bleep test and, and I thought, I was doing it and then I thought, why am I doing this? I'm not even going to, he, he's not, even if I finish top, I'm not, I'm not going to get, he's not going to play me. He's not, he's not going to respect me. It's like, yeah, whatever. And I, I, I remember I ducked out early and 
to this day, I regret that because that's not me. And it, it kind of like made me feel like, you know what, Brian, you weren't professional then. And I'll never forget, Robbie, Robbie Musto did the, Robbie Musto had been in and out of the side as well. And he was like on the subs bench and Robbie was the one who had the best time. And I remember thinking, you know what, Brian, that's what professionalism is. And that's mm. what I should have been doing. And I, I wish I could turn the clock back and smash it just so that I could say, right, stick two fingers up at him and say, you know what, you're not going to break me. But it broke me then. And then I realised then that I had to leave the club mm. because perhaps I'd lost the respect of the lads for what I did. Mm. You know? Um, so that's, that's what I did. I, I kind of, you know, West Ham... No, it was Leicester. That's right, yeah. Leicester came in and, you know, I was happy to go in the end. Yeah, and it was a shame at Leicester. I mean, you went there for Harry Bassett <clears> again, <throat> didn't you? You yeah. couldn't save him from relegation that first season, but then you scored twice in that 2-0 win over Watford, the first goals in that new Walker Stadium. But Leicester was a very different club back then, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Look, that was one of the happiest uh, changes I've been in. It was hilarious. Every day was just... It was just brilliant. Such characters, um, you know. Who were there I then? Mean, I know you were up front with Paul Dickov, but who else was involved in having a bit of fun? Uh, so, Andrew Wimpy, Frank Sinclair, um, young lad called Jordan Stewart, Ian Walker, Matty Elliott, Tags, Jerry Taggart. Jerry Dennis Taggart White. was an absolute animal, wasn't he? I think... Uh, Big Jerry, yeah. Oh, I love I, Jerry. I, He's a great guy. <laughs> I can't remember the name of the player, but this player got Big Jerry sent off when he was at Leicester. And apparently he waited down the tunnel <laughs> yeah, for him. That's Jerry. I used to call Jerry the Kurgan from Lurgan. Because he's from Lurgan and he reminded me of... You remember Highlander? Right, yeah. The big, Kur the big baddie, yeah, that was the Kurgan. So I used to call him the Kurgan from Lurgan. <laughs> but he, um, no, Jerry was a great guy. Matty Elliott, good guy. Um, and you had um, Dennis Wise and uh, Robbie Savage and them two hated each other with a passion. You know, and it was, I actually got on all right with Wise. He was an all right guy, you know. He was, he was um, you know, Peter Taylor had bought him in and Peter Taylor had given him a huge contract. And, Fair enough, you know, and um, Wise used to just come in, get on with his work and, you know, do his business, go on. Um, and I'm not going to talk about that inf infamous um, time, but what I can tell you is, is that one of the funniest things that I've, I've seen was, um, I mean, them two really did not like each other. And uh, I remember, like, I kind of came at the time when it was a Christmas do, the lads Christmas do. And um, I remember we had to give each other presents. And um, it was Dennis. Dennis gave Robbie his present. He got him a... Um, it, <laughs> he, he put, like... He, a lot of thought went into this. He actually got a dildo and put, and put like, some hair on the top of it like it was Robbie and said, yeah, I bought you a, a, a miniature doll of yourself. <laughs> and, and, like, yeah, they, they just didn't like each other. Them how too, did Robbie know? take that? Well, they didn't like each other. You know, I can't remember what the outcome was, but I remember people were like, oh, no, did he really do that? But Dennis didn't care, you know what I mean? Dennis is a, 
he's he's a fiery little guy, you know what I mean? And um, yeah, so it was uh, some funny times, you know. One, probably the funniest changing room that I've been in, you know. And we needed that down there because there was some, we had some horrendous times as well, you know. Well, you went into administration, didn't you? Uh, I think Gary Lineker led a consortium that, that saved you. I mean, did, did you have direct dealings with Lineker? Was he around a lot of the time? Gary Lineker? Um, I mean, he came down. We saw him once with his, I think it was John Holmes. Was that his agent or somebody like that? Was that who was doing this um, takeover? I mean, yeah, he came in and, he, you know, he helped to steady the ship. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I mean... Look, it, it's simple. You know, the club was going to go into liquidation and we all agreed to take uh, deferments. Um, and, um, you know, what, what we did was we all got together as a group of guys and said, listen, guys, we get, we get promoted. We're good enough to get promoted out of this division. We've just got to stick together, be very professional. And, you know, we, we can go back up. And then there aren't any financial issues for anybody. Everybody gets their money. And, um, and we had some fun. We had some fun that year as well. And I had a great partnership with Paul Dickoff. Um, worked very well together. Um, you know, great, really good times. Even though it was in the championship, you know, like you say, I got, my first, I got the first two goals in that division. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a good time. Good yeah. time for me. Yeah, great collective spirit. Then you know, backs to the wall to kind of come through that. Um, and then you had a spell at West Ham. First time you played for a, a London side. There were some good names there still: Jermaine Defoe, Michael Carrick, I think Rob Lee, David James. And you said you really enjoyed playing for Alan Pardew. Now I know he's a man who people from chocolate. The <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, if he was an ice cream, he'd eat himself. One of those. But you said he's. You really liked his approach to training and the way that he managed clubs. Yeah, I did. I mean, I can only talk about, you know, in tra training was fun. I think that's half the problem. You know, if you've got um, somebody whose training sessions are well-structured and the players want to go there and be there and, you know, we all wanted, to, we all wanted that with, with the sessions with Alan. I liked the way how we played. Um, so there were no issues there. Um, you know, obviously at the end of that season, it, it, you know, and, and I had a decent record down there, but Jermaine Defoe went to Tottenham, Bobby Zamora came in and he wanted to partner, um, he wanted to part, he wanted to play Bobby, obviously. And, and I, you know, again, I was getting on a bit, but I still felt like I, I don't like to give up very easily. And I remember one of the coaches, um, uh, he came to me one day and said, oh, Brian, you know, if you want to kind of have a couple of days off a week and, you know, just train three days a week around games, I thought, no. I said, no, I want to train like everybody else, you know. And I don't know if in my mind I was thinking, well, are they trying to manage me out of the situation or whatever? But I didn't want to do that. And, um, you know, I stayed and it, it didn't... Um, it didn't work out for me in the end how I wanted it to be, but I stayed the season. Um, I became, as Alan Pardew said, I became an impact player because there was one game in particular where I was really upset and angry that I'd been left out against Sunderland. And um, I was on the bench. We were 2-0 down at half-time. 
and I came on and I must have scared the life out of the Sunderland back four. We won 3-2 and and afterwards Alan Pardew kind of came in and he singled me out for special praise and got the lad, said to the lads, listen, you proved me wrong today, Brian. And he said, listen, I think you should um, give Brian a round of applause because he's, you know, he's he's really kind of, he's the reason why he won the game. And I remember thinking, I want to kill him, but I mm. want to cry as well. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because... And then, um, you know, but then I became more of an impact player in his eyes. Um, the consequence of that was um, that um, I, you know, that's where, you know, if we were losing, then he'd want to bring me on and change things up. And, you know, and, and, and it was at the end of that season that he said to me, uh, listen, you know, have you thought about what your next step is in football? And I think my attitude was, what's that got to do with you? I was really turning into a rebel now because I was getting older and, and I was thinking, now these guys are starting to fob me off. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? And there'd been a couple of instances where, you know, I'd, I'd spoken up in the changing rooms and that's what he was talking about. And, and that's where he gave me an envelope with some, with, with the application in for like a management course. And it was, so it was all genuine. Mm. But at the time, I, I couldn't see it. And I was um, I was like, well, no, he's just saying it to get rid of me. And it might have been, but it was a gesture that I've never had from any other manager. And I'll always respect the fact that he actually thought about that. Oh, no, that's, that's really interesting. It kind of paints him in a different light for a lot of people who've maybe got a, a negative opinion of him. Um, now, I know you lost that championship playoff final at the Millennium Stadium that season because I was actually there with all my mates supporting Crystal Palace. So, apologies uh, for that. Neil Shipley popped up with the only goal. And then yeah. you, you had a bit of a nomadic end to your career, but there was still that really fantastic high where you scored four goals for Leeds in that 6-1 win over QPR. But what was that Leeds club like that you went back to? Because they'd obviously gone through all their financial problems at that stage. Yeah, it was a, it was a shambles. Um, you know, it, you know, I kind of looked at that and it was almost as though, you know, it was like rats leaving a sinking ship by and large. You know, there was only like Gary Kelly, um, Michael Dubry left, you know, everybody else had gone. The club had got rid of players, you know, on the wage bill. I think Gary had decided, look, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to finish my career and I'm going back to Ireland, which was, you know, you have to respect that. And he gave everything. Mm. Dubs, had, um, you know, he had a raw deal with what had happened with a, with a incident. I'm sure you're familiar with Boyer and Woodgate. He got a bit of a rod. So he was there and, you know, that must have been a really tough time for him because he was, he got just thrown into something, I think, um, that was nothing to do with him. Um, so, yeah, the, you know, but I went back there. I was, I had a house around, I had a flat in Weatherby and it was, it, to be honest, it was great to get back there because I bought this place when I was down at, when I was at Middlesbrough. Yeah. And I'd never really lived in it. So it was great to go back there. And I went back to Leeds and, you know, I was five minutes from the training ground. Um, you know, we, but the, the club was in transition, definitely. And um, Kevin Blackwell was the manager. Again, not my, some people are just horrible for the sake of it. And I found him to be one of them. 
you know, I, I remember, I remember, for example, um, when I'd left the club and he'd come back to be manager of Sheffield United and they'd asked me to come back as an ambassador and um, they were going out to Malta and I was, I kind of, I was on the staff side so I stayed well away from all the players. And we were in Manchester Airport and I remember he kind of looked over me and he went, he went, Dino. I looked at him, he went, so what are you doing here? And I thought, I said, I'm coming out as an ambassador. And I thought, how can you talk to me like this? You know what I mean? Who do you think you are? But he was a manager, so, you know, um, you know, and he was very good at telling everybody how many coaching qualifications he had and all the rest of it. And being nice doesn't cost anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. Being horrible. You got to, you know, I, when, I, when I think, you know, I try and be a nice person as much as I can. You know what I mean? It's not easy sometimes and, and all the rest of it. And, you know, sometimes people see kindness as a weakness. I don't because I'm just trying to live my life. But there are people out there who are that horrible and miserable that they can wear it on their face and they, have, they end up with a permanent scowl. And I, I, I just think with him, it was just... Because I've heard other people, he, he did some horrible things. I, I witnessed myself. He used to try and make a point with me in changing him. So like, I was a senior professional at Leeds now because I'm, I'm 37, yeah? And he'd give a team talk and... He'd then go, anybody, anybody got anything to say? Kells, Butts, Griegs. And that was it. It never came to me. And it was almost like he was trying to make a point. And in the end, I used to just laugh at him. Do you know what I mean? Because he didn't want my opinion. And it was almost like he was trying to say, well, your opinion don't count for anything. You know, he was trying to kind of suppress me. Um, and I just thought, you know what, you're a clown. Mm. You're, you know, you're, you've got your own, you're, you've got your own insecurities, pal. You know, you, you should be able to embrace somebody who's been there and seen it and done it, not like yourself. You know, who's had to kind of rely on coming through in professional football in the coaching. And look, hey, look, I'm sure he's still. I think he might be working with Neil Warnock again. I don't know, but you know, like I said, I don't really care. You know, I, I was I was blessed and fortunate to have my career, but I've never been knowingly horrible to people. I've seen how he used to treat Clark Carlisle. I've seen how he used to treat his own staff, you know, and it was all down to insecurity. And yeah, I, I remember one time I, I, we played a game and I missed, a, I missed an opportunity and it was, a, it was a bad miss. But the way we went on at half time, it was as though he'd been waiting for months to be able to, you know, he probably willed me to miss that opportunity so that he could tell me how shit he thought I was. You know, and that's the measure of the man. Do you know what I mean? So I've got no time for him. Um, I've seen him try to humiliate one of his own staff. And I just think, you know what? Look, I'm 52 years of age now. And, you know, we're, there's only one person I'm going to have to answer to. And that's the, the, the big man above, mm. you know? and you know, in those situations, I will always try to kind of help people to, to develop themselves. I got nothing from him. Mm. The only thing I got from him was the fact that I got to wear the lead shirt again.
that's the only thing that he gave me. You know, uh, I haven't got anything good to say about him and I don't really care. Yeah. You know, because I, I'm like, you don't have to be a... Or maybe he'll reflect and he'll look back and he'll think how, how he behaved with certain people. Um, but I just know that he tried to humiliate me at times. And, you know, that, like I say, in the changing rooms, I mean, because one, one of the coaches, two of the coaches actually, I remember one of the coaches actually came to me and said, because something happened and I pulled him up about it in, in we were having a video something or, you know, and then I spoke to, I, I kind of threw it out to the coach and the coach came down on my side. And I found out afterwards that he'd actually berated the coach, even though I was right. You know, um, and, I, and I seen him try to humiliate another member of his staff as well. And I thought, mate, you, you got it all wrong, you know? Yeah. You say Kevin Blackwell, the one good thing he did was give you a lead shirt again. Yeah. How do you reflect on your time in an England shirt? It was, it was brief in the early 90s under Graham yeah. Taylor. But how do you yeah. reflect on it? A couple of games out in New Zealand? Yeah. Um, it was, look, I was, I was really proud to wear the shirt. I was glad that I, that I wore the shirt. Um, I think that there was a lot of fear for me around it again. And, and it comes back to what I've mentioned before about fear of failure. So I never really relaxed in my opportunities, mm. which is a shame really, because... I think I could have offered something. I'm not saying that they weren't better players, but I just would have preferred to have given a better account of myself in, in my shirt. I got three caps. I could have had more, I should have had more, but it wasn't to happen. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not here. You know, I was grateful for Graham Taylor for giving me the opportunity. And, um, you know, I, I just didn't have a lot of belief in myself at that time. You know, I think that if I'd have had somebody kind of telling me how good I was and, you know, because that's on a different level. You know, I came from Sheffield United and all the players came from Manchester United, Liverpool, Spurs, Arsenal. And, you know, that's where you go. You're going into those situations and there's clicks, um, you know, and you're the only one from a small club as they see it and nobody would talk to you or, you know, you kind of, you're in the, you're in the um, you're in your room. You come down for your dinner. You go back up to your room. You don't know anybody. It was horrible. You know what I mean? Um, you know, and it's not what you think. I was I was proud that I was there. I was I was immensely proud the fact that I was in amongst a, a great group of players, very talented players. But I didn't do myself justice. Um, it was. I don't think it's fair to say it was a weakness on my behalf. I was. Everything I've learned about psychology and all the rest of it, I've had to kind of it's sink or swim. And, you know, I think because I've got those experiences, it's, it would be so easy to mentor somebody. I think um, there are people who have success all the way through their careers. And so they don't have to have that level of resilience or that level of kind of understanding because everything is just smooth sailing. But I think for me, I had to learn and I had to reflect and sometimes it was too late. And I think that was one of those periods where it was too late to do anything about it because there was younger and better players than me about them who were scoring goals. And just finally then, Brian, you talked about mentoring there. 
And you may not be in football management now, but you're transitioning into more managerial and senior roles in the corporate world. Tell us more about what you're doing now with Phoenix. So Phoenix, uh, we, we set Phoenix up myself and um, some other ex-professionals, Michael Thomas, um, Paul Williams, Rod, um, and, and some others in the background who are working as well. And we've set it up alongside what we think are best in practice people. We have a training company. We're looking at um, where players are looking to transition from sport into business. Um, we're talking about mentoring younger players. Um, these are all the areas where I think that footballers are young men um, and they're given too much responsibility um, when they don't really have the answers um, for themselves. In the same way, we can talk about financial literacy and, and understanding what their finances mean, understanding the value of the kind of money, their money, by the way, not anybody else's. So, you know, you don't have a situation where, you know, where they don't know that they're working for their advisors or whoever. You know, it's, it's about understanding. I think the best way to understand the, the, what we do is to, if we have a strap line, our strap line is, you know, um, taking care of people's futures and rebuilding futures because there is a, a, a big area of exploitation in football that, you know, having been in situations where people could have looked after me better, I don't want to see that for the next generation because, you know, we, we're lucky in that we, we understand a little bit about it, but there's so much money in the game now that it's people who are coming in now to try and extricate some of this money are very sophisticated. And it's better that people leave football understanding how to look after themselves and so they can transition into the wider world um, without any issues than to kind of come out and then fall off a cliff. And I think that's something that we're all passionate about. Of course, it's business. And of course, you know, we, we, we want it to be a successful business, but there is a way of doing it ethically to make sure that you're doing the right thing and that people are actually getting the right value and, and the right um, information and, and uh, advice. And, that, and that's what we do. We, you know, it's unique because we, we've actually worn the shorts. Mm. You know, we found people who we actually um, trust and, um, and believe in. And and I I would I would walk to the I'd walk to the other end of the earth with these people now because I know what we've all been through together in Phoenix size. Yeah, Brian, that's absolutely brilliant. What a fantastic way to finish it. Look into the future, and I'm sure you'll make a great success of it. But thank you very much for your time, and I'll speak to you very soon. Pleasure. Footballers Lives was brought to you by the Phoenix Sport and Media Group, www.psm-group.co.uk.